Again, and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was a song way back from 1963. Burn Elliott and the Fenman and Money that did hit the top 20 back in late 63. I understand the reason I'm playing that is because I've got the wonderfully multi talented John Povey, formerly of the Pretty Things, here. Hello, John. Hello, so John, welcome to the show. And uh, th- this show really is a mix of uh, some of your favourite uh, tracks related to, to, to your very long and illustrious career. And we kind of start at the very beginning, I guess, with uh, Burn Elliott of the Fenman. And we also bring us right up to date with a track from your current project, uh, Star Sponge Vision, that, that you've done with uh, Twink. I mean, firstly, just tell us a little bit about your Star Sponge Vision project and, and then take us way back to 1963. Well, I think we've all, people of my year anyway, my age group, if you like, I've always been aware of Alistair Crowley because he was an influence with Zeppelin, obviously, and with other bands of that ilk, you know, particularly with Jimmy Page. And I hadn't really given it much thought, but I've been working with Twink on one of his Think Pink projects, doing some overdubs for him, some piano work up in the studio in North London. He said to me, well, have you ever thought about writing anything or doing anything on Alistair Crowley? And, and frankly, I said no. Um, and he said, well, give it a go, you know. So I sort of read, got some books online, read up about Crowley and got into it a bit. And then I have a little studio in my outside my house, a little room in Spain. And uh, I just sort of started to fiddle around the piano. And this track called Crowley and Me came out, which is not anything to do with Crowley's poetry or life, really. But just tried to depict what, how I saw his, the whole thing. And it kind of came together extremely fast. And I sent the, a rough MP3 to Twink and he said, oh, it's great. He said, well, I'll try and have a crack at some of the poetry. So I obviously read a lot of his poems and I had to change the, the lyrics a fair bit because it was written, you know, before the turn of the, the century and everything. So it was very, very, you couldn't really sing some of the 
lines that he put together. So we had to kind of play around with those a bit. We carried on doing that. And we decided, well, let's get in the studio and do it. So we had to select some guys to play with us. And uh, I've been recommended a very young guitar player, about 23 years of age, called Max Gibson. And uh, got in contact with him. He, pl- he sent me a couple of stuff, things that he'd done, tunes that he'd done. And I thought, well, this guy can play. And then we got another guy who plays with a band called Whole Lot of Lead, um, which is a sort of Zeppelin tribute band. There was a link there with Zeppelin. Another guy called Ed Sykes and decided, because Twink lives in Colchester, he lives in Marrakesh, but he also lives in Colchester as well uh, from time to time. So we got a studio up there and in we went. And away we went, really, and it went from there. And, of course, that kind of going back in time, Certainly with Twink in 1968, because we played together in the Pretty Things Together in 1968, Twink for a couple of years, till the 70s. But then before that, of course, I was with a band with Wally Allen called The Marshalls, which which never had any recording career. So there's nothing historically documented, really, or anything to listen to. But Wally and I then joined a band called Burn Elliott and the Fenmen, Burn Elliott being the singer, uh, because you must remember in those days that it was very much Cliff and the Shadows and so-and-so and the so-and-sos and so-and-so and the so-and-so. So it was, you know, a front man with a band behind. And we were sent off to Germany with 20 quid in our pockets. Uh, we drove all the way to Hamburg and we played there. It's a long story, really, so I'll cut it a lot because we weren't paid in the club we were playing, but the owner of the Star Club came and heard us playing and liked us and offered us a, a month's uh, contract at the Star Club and that's really how it all began really because we restarted listening to the Liverpool bands who were, we'd never heard of, the Beatles what a funny name we thought and these kind of things the Searchers, King Size Taylor and the Dominoes, the Big Three and all these kind of bands that had a quite a, a following in Liverpool but we'd never travelled south really so we'd never heard of them and one thing we did notice that they were singing, instead of singing one guy and the other guys just standing behind sort of playing, they were all taking turns to sing lead parts and they were all singing harmonies together. And of course, we thought, this is great. So we listened to the searchers and a lot of Liverpool bands were playing Mummy. Uh, and Mummy was the, the anthem of Liverpool, if you like. I mean, all the Liverpool bands knew the song. We'd never heard it before. So we nicked it if you like, or learnt it, and uh, took it back to England and got a opportunity to meet with a guy from Decca called Peter Sullivan. We played it to him, he liked it, and we recorded it, and off we went. And that's how it really began, really. It all became from Hamburg uh, from the early 60s, 62, I think it was, 62, 61, 62. And that's how it began. And you got the hit with money, though. Yeah, we got the hit that went into the charts, and from that we got uh, Rolling Stones, John Layton, Mike Sand, five thousand other bands, two of all the in those days all the Gaumont cinemas, all around the country, including I think we played in Liverpool as well. We also did an album at the Cavern Club, so it was like full circle, if you like. You know, we'd started getting ideas from the Liverpool bands, and we went back there and made. Uh, a live album at the cavern, so it was it was an interesting time. Now, John, um, our next song uh, takes us uh, deep into the realm of psychedelia, but I just want to mention the Fenman a bit because obviously you didn't carry on the 
the the Mersey sound forever. That you you really developed that harmony sound as you went into the yeah, that's mm. right. I mean, we all, you know, our kind of background was when we were kids. We were I was sent off to Mrs. Rogers, the piano teacher, when I was seven, because my mother didn't want me hanging around. So she said, "Look, I'll pay for you to go down Mrs. Rogers and learn the piano." So uh, a lot of people of my era had that as well. So there was quite more of a, a sort of musical foundation or a larger musical foundation to draw from. And then, of course, later on, when we were a bit older, we were asked to join the, the, the church choir. And although not particularly religious in that sense, loved the music. I always sit every year and avidly listen to the Cambridge College Choir at Christmas Eve, five o'clock on BBC Two. And just listen to the beautifully crafted harmonies that they sing. It's just a wonderful blend of voices. Having left the choir, because we were too old now to sing in our voice, you know, and our balls had dropped anyway, and we couldn't sing those high notes anymore, um, or not easily anyway. You still retain that sort of idea of harmonies in your mind. So the Fen men, after Bernie decided that he wanted to have a solo career, or he was encouraged to think that he had a solo career where they put him with big bands and all sorts of stuff like that. So we were kind of left high and dry. So we thought, well, let's try some harmony stuff. So we, the Beach Boys obviously were just starting and all that sort of stuff. So we sort of started to copy that in a way, but put our own sort of spin on it. So then we decided, well, let's try and do some all sorts of different numbers and involve harmonies, write some stuff as well. Wally was writing some B-sides and stuff like that. So we, you know, we just did all our songs like that, where we would swap vocals like the Beatles, like the Beatles do or did, and then put some harmonies in as well. So that's our love of harmony came from that. And also that carried on, obviously, into the Pretty Things as well later on, much later on. We played a gig up in in the north somewhere, and I can't remember exactly where it is, but uh, and I can't remember... The, the lead singer of the lead singer of yes what what's his name john anderson john that's it john was playing with a band with us on a show and he came backstage after he was only a young kid like we were you know and he said oh, i love the harmonies and of course that then inspired them to do quite a lot that you know it was kind of inspired him to sing more harmonies in his band and so on and so forth so it, it's quite interesting that that the effect that that approaching songs in that way have really or had. And your next song is uh, Pink Floyd and their uh, debut single, Arnold Lane. Well, we, we were in Abbey Road. We'd written a song and recorded it in Soho at Southern Sound. This was all very for four trap machine in those days. And um, we did this eight-minute single called Defecting Grey. This was after Wally and I were asked to come out of the Men and join the Pretty Things. And so we did, we, we were starting to, to delve into experimental stuff. So we did this eight minute single. And from that, yeah, Norman Smith, the EMI, who was an EMI house producer, um, and he'd been an engineer on some of the Beatles stuff anyway, with George Martin. And, um, he heard this and thought, oh, I really like this. So he got assigned up to EMI as long as we reduced Defecting Grey down to the six minutes, which is what we did. It came out as a single. And then from that, SF Sorrow began to emerge as an idea, as a rock opera idea. And so 
we then re- went into e- Abbey Road, uh, EMI's sort of flagship studio, and um, recorded, started to record SSR. Of course, Norm at that time was also working with the Floyd, with, with, um, with the early Pink Floyd band. And um, he was very instrumental in Arnold Lane. If you hear the, the middle piano bit where it all goes, and all that, that's Norman doing his piano bit in the middle of our... <laughs> so, you know, we were all very linked together. It was very much like a very small family. And the Beatles, of course, were coming in a bit later and doing Sgt. Pepper's when time went on a little bit further. in that that influence of the of the psychedelic sound in that period it must have been really you know incredibly creative time well first all you for a start you were very limited in what you could do having unlimited what you can do sometimes is self-defeating because you don't know it's like going into a shop where there's five million things hanging up on the wall and you don't know where to start well in our music 
uh, and our recording techniques in those days, um, you didn't have the choice of effects and things. You know, you had a, a bit of an echo room somewhere and a mellotron somewhere and a bit, but you didn't have too much. So you had to, you had to really make everything you, you recorded sound extremely good. And also at Abbey Road at that time, they had upstairs above the studios, they had a, an engineering section. And these guys used to come in with their brown coats on and biro marks coming out the, out the top pocket and with a, with a little aluminium box with all leads sort of sticking out of it and said to Dick or Dick Taylor, so quick, just plug this in, Dick, see what this sounds like. And the guitar, you know, wow, never heard that before. And so we were very lucky to be in that kind of bubble where everybody was experimenting, not only the bands with music, but also the, the way things were recorded as well. You know, so that's why this whole thing really came popular. In terms of defecting grey, we we you, you mentioned about limited on tracks. Were you, were you bouncing track on track? Yeah. Is it the yeah. tape hiss that I can hear because of the the having to sort of bounce? You will, yeah, and and also there wasn't the you did, didn't have the compressors that you know and the limiters that they have these days. So you always got that kind of. It, it was in a way it was kind of like a part of the song really wasn't yeah, it <laughs> you know, very much so you know and you expect it you uh, that's what we disliked about hearing our stuff on the radio at that time because it was so compressed to get you know to make it to come out on with the equipment that they produced you know they would send um, music out on the radio that it didn't sound like anything you'd ever done um you didn't have that kind of live sort of edgy feel to it that you got with the early stuff, which is why I think kids of these days have all gone back full circle into vinyl and where they like that edgy kind of live feel to it. Just no friend of mine 
Our next track is SF Sorrow is born, obviously, by the, the Pretty Things. What was the um, writing process in that period? Were, were you jamming or well, we were all doing stuff? Yeah, it's, it's funny, though, because we've got a... Funny enough, you should say that, because we've got a... There's a, an SF Sorrow anniversary. I'm sorry to uh, plug it, but, I mean, I don't mean to plug it, but it's part of the story. There's an SF Sorrow um, anniversary box set coming out early spring, I think, from Snapper. And in that, they've asked us to write a couple of full scat pages of handwritten notes about that time. Funny enough, I was writing it last night, trying to recall, because it was 50 years ago, trying to recall those times. And of course, it is all about the writing process. We were at, in Erith, at Phil's mother and father. He lived with them in a little house in Chipstead Road in Erith, and where Wally lived across the road at number seven, I think. Don't quote me on the numbers because I don't remember them. And we were all around there and we were playing sort of Disraeli gears and we were playing all sorts of stuff like that. And we were all a little high on sort of, on sort of illegal substances like a bit of acid and stuff like that, which was banded around at that time. And of course, the character came from Phil Sebastian's SF Sorrow. Nobody knew what the F stood for and nobody cared. Um, this story came out and we thought, well, why don't we then while we're sitting around together in Phil's front room, why don't we try and get some other characters? And Dick came up with, what about Baron Saturday? He was a, a African witch doctor and all sorts. So it all kind of came together quite quickly because once you, it's like Crowley, 
once you start writing, if somebody says, well, look, there's the character already, it's much easier to write for the character or for in Crowley's situation for his poetry and what he's trying to talk about than it is just to write something from scratch when you're sitting there with cold fingers on the keyboard, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, well, what, what am I right? What, what am I doing? Why am I here? You know, do you know what I'm saying? So it's much easier to write when somebody says, what about writing for private sorrow? When it, what did SF sorrow do? Well, he was born. Uh, he grew up. He fell in love with the girl next door. He then went, he was drafted into the army because he, we all came from the war. So we we're war babies. So, the war thing, although we're not terribly conscious of that because we weren't old enough to be in the war, the, the, in the Second World War, you still had that in your psyche. You still had that sort of influence from your parents and from, you know, that sort of thing. So it's quite a strong sort of letting off of, of or letting out of, of ideas, which came very quickly. A bit like Roger Waters' The War, really. I mean, he was, you know, he was very much into all that kind of that sort of stuff really you know in terms of sf sorrow we we was was the band in a similar position to the the zombies um in the kind of were you self-financing that and it it did seem to take a a long quite a period of time before it got released yeah well we that's interesting that you bring that up yeah one of the reasons it got time was that we norman said look the only way that Norman was very much with us. He was like the sixth pretty thing, really. He really was. I mean, he bent over backwards to, you know, to do things for us. And at that time, going back in time, of course, it's a different world totally, and you didn't really... The people who were selling this stuff, going out and flogging it to record companies and rec, sorry, record shops, which there were millions of in those days, um, didn't really understand what we were trying to do. You know, what's this rock opera? What, what, what does it mean? So we had a special meeting at EMI in Manchester Square where we sat down with all the record executives and all these guys uh, and gave them a printed sheets of the story, uh, played it to them, tried to explain the whole thing. No, it didn't, they didn't really get it. So, of course, it didn't really get out there until much, much later because, you know, it was one of those very, very slow burners of course, the Who, a year later, who wore out, who Townsend has has said openly, it was the main influence for for Tommy. Of course, they were much more bankable in that sense because they approached it in a much more, you know, much more much more of a retail mood. You know, so they it was much more it was easier. It wasn't so subtle as ours was because it was easy to copy or to to be influenced by something that's already been done much easier than that to do something that has never been done before. So they, they crafted it around their lineup. We crafted it around our lineup, but we had Norman with his multifaceted ideas and instrumentation and all sort of backward stuff and all sort of stuff like that. So, you know, we, that's, you know, we made in hindsight, we, we, if we'd have done it more, you know, more simply in that sense, it would have probably sold more, I think, but it's still going, you see, 50 years later, (laughs) It was it was just a great thing to do. I mean, to us, we were like children in a sweet shop when we walked into Abbey Road and we saw all this instrumentation there. We saw George's sitar and tambura locked in a cupboard, so we borrowed that. We saw Ringo's drum kit. We didn't realise how they could get such great sounds out of the drums. And then we realised when we saw his drum kit, 
that it was twice the size of anybody else's drum kit. So they got those wonderful, huge, great snare drum sounds and tom-toms. And sorry, Ringo, we did borrow your snare drum on a couple of tracks. But don't say anything, please. (laughs) Good times. Yeah, great. was the pretty things and sf sorrow is born and uh, we were talking earlier john that you've you've picked uh, a range of songs that mm. that are, are favorites of yours and so we'll be bouncing a, a, around the year so a bit more up to date and we've got a, a comparatively recent song by status quo two-way traffic which uh from this later period is uh more of a sort of return to their rock roots and the sort of real status quo sound well we we toured a couple of times with Quo. We really got on very well with them. They were like souls, if you like. And although they were simpler in their music, far more successful than we were at selling records. But 
the simplicity and their energy and drive, which is fantastic. I was watching, the reason I picked that track was because I was listening to, I was watching the TV and on came a documentary about Quo, where they brought Johnny Coggan back and and the bass player, and they didn't look particularly kind of happy about being there anyway on the program. But then they, they did a link to the latest thing that they did with Parfit and playing away this song with a new band, new drummer, new bass player. And I thought, wow, this is, it's got so much energy. It's such a great track, such a great live track as well. So simple, but and 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 also with the lead guitar stuff, which just stood out, and the and the singing, the and the whole thing to me was so energetic. I thought, right, I'm going to get that. So I got, I pretty quickly bought that track on iTunes when it, you know, when it was released, and uh, I play it all the time because it's got so much energy. It reminds me of our touring of the UK, and we also toured with them in America as well. So great, great mates and great fun. And we did a couple of gigs with them. We did one in New Orleans, I think. We did one in Atlanta with them. In those days, we were sort of going from, we did a, a, some work with ELO, we did some work with the Kinks, we did some work with Status Quo. So we went from tour to tour to tour, you know, and a couple of American bands as well, I think. We did some work with them. But they were great fun, and we had some great nights out with them after the, after we done the after we done the gig, you know. So they were good. They were good pals. Sorry to see old Parfit popped, um, but not surprised because he worked. They they worked so hard. Those guys. I mean, I, I have to say, any. I mean, I admire them because they, you know, for all the years they did it, they never stopped putting all that energy into what they did.
now we've got Steely Dan, home at last, uh, from that wonderful album, Asia. Just a, a, a great band at their peak here, John. Always been a fan of them anyway, because we first came into contact with them, not personally, but through listening to some songs of theirs from the early Steely Dan, you know. Uh, what's the song, the famous one? Oh, Not really it. in the years, is it? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, love it. And the guy's voice. And you have to admire, and I've always sort of bought their records and followed them because you have to admire the musicianship and you have to admire the detail in which they record. Obviously, a successful band of that selling that many records can afford to spend months, maybe even years, in, in a studio making sure it's right. And as a musician and a, and, a re- and a record enthusiast, if you like, and certainly understanding how difficult it is to get these things to sound exactly right and also to get the right performance. Um, Steely Dan, regardless of whatever song they wrote or recorded, always got that excellent, unbelievable detail in their recording. Drums and the drum solos. You know, the, the brass sounds and just the whole thing as a musician, you think, wow, that's just top. That's why I like their stuff, you know. Not only that track, I listen to a lot of, a lot of their stuff and uh, Asia is another one I love, you know, that's a great track.
Okay, uh, we're now moving back uh, 10 years to the birds and have you seen her face? Um, Chris Hillman tracked this one. Well, that's sort of on a sort of female attraction, sexual level, being in California in the early days, seeing the, the, the lovely young ladies walking around. That whole song sort of depicts that time, you know, where you really are in awe of these beautiful women. I mean, as a young guy, you're pitched into the, the middle of this world where it's all suntan and blonde hair and no braziers and, and nothing else really underneath long, lovely sort of hippie dresses. And, and of course, you're, you know, you're, t- what can I do? I mean, I'm just a red blooded male, like, like millions of other red blooded males. And of course, that song really, to me, evokes those memories. You know, the birds anyway, it's just a lovely blend of voices again. Dave Crosby, of course, to me, was the birds really. I know Chris Hill, Chris Hill was a great, play, great bass player, but just a lovely kind of memory. Sort of when you play that song, it just, you, you're there. You're in, you know, you're in San Francisco and, you know, you're walking down the street and you, you leave eyes and, a t-shirt or something with a bit of turquoise jewelry on or something like that and this wonderful sort of image brushes past you and of course you're hooked
And you did mention it this uh, next track earlier, John, uh, the King's College Cambridge Choir and a Spotless Rose. Um, what a wonderful uh, piece by uh, Herbert Howells here. It's the, chord chain, it's the chord structure and the harmony structure on that, which is just, it's difficult to get a blend between the boys and the altos and the, you know, my, my family, my, my grandfather was a singer. He had one of those voices. We used to go to church with my mother. My mother was also uh, a trained soprano. So I had an early, you know, an early association with church or the way church choirs construct the singing. When you listen to something, once again, we talked about Steely Dan and the excellence of that. Well, you know, you talk about 12, 14 year old boys, maybe 11, 14 year old boys being disciplined to sing like that it's easier for the other guys but the older guys behind have now matured their voices to drop whatever but to get young guys like that to to actually and there's nothing like a, you know you can always close your eyes and listen to classical music or you listen to choir music and you know when it's girls singing and you know when it's boys singing there's nothing really like a a, a boy's a, a young boy's voice at, the, at that register uh, you can't, once that time has gone and you've got to 15 and you lose, your voice is gone, your voice has dropped, it's gone forever. So those choirs, every year they come up with a new choir, with a new discipline, and it's just that, that particular track is just basically illustrates how discipline and how the love of harmony work so beautifully together. It's just, just quite a short piece as well, beautifully sung and such an unusual hymn as well, you know. We all, oh, we are, we are faithful, da, 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 and all that. But this is nothing like that. The way that's the way that song's constructed is a one-off, really. Great, great, great hymn.
You've picked Joni Mitchell listening to Survival from For the Roses next. This is just an incredible time for Joni Mitchell. It was a, at least a decade of fantastic song after song and, and album after album. I think this was a period when she was kind of documenting her relationship with James Taylor, actually. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, but, you know, I think every every hot-blooded, red-blooded musician was always in love with Joni Mitchell when she first came out, stood there with her bare feet and long hair and that beautiful voice. And, of course, going further with her, she was a great musician and her piano playing is beautiful. I mean, it's very unusual. It's very clever. It's extremely somebody who knows music, backwards, sideways, upside down. She knows music. It's just the intervals for me as a musician, the intervals between the story she's telling and the the gaps in between where she plays in between the, the song. And, you know, just about growing up, you know, the way she wasn't understood. I think we all kind of, I think every teenager sort of goes through this, but most of us don't get the opportunity to write such a beautiful song about that. And then going forward through that, it's about a whole sort of, you know, going through that, that whole period in her life and then being, then escaping from that and then finding, you know, love and, and the disappointment of love as well. You know, love fades and a lot of her stuff is very personal. A lot of her stuff from that album, from the, is it on the Blue album? No, it's not. For the Roses, but it's a similar period. For the Roses, yeah. yeah. And afterwards with the Blue album, I mean, it's her stuff. I think Phil also, Phil May was a great fan, or still is a great fan of Joni Mitchell. Great song. Great songwriter. Uh, Blonde in the Bleachers is another one. that I know we'd, I haven't picked that, but you could go on. could be a whole program about Joni Mitchell, really. Lesson in survival Spinning out on turns That gets you tough Guru books the Bible Only a reminder that you're Just not good enough You need to believe in something Once I could in our love Black road, double yellow line Friends and kin Campers in the kitchen that's fine sometimes But I know my needs My sweet tumbleweed I need more quiet times By a river flowing You and me Deep kisses and the sun going down Maybe it's paranoia, maybe it's sensitivity Your friends protect you, scrutinize me I get so damn timid, not at all the spirit that's inside of me Oh baby, I can't seem to make it with you socially There's this reef around me I'm looking way out at the ocean Love to see that green water in motion Fresh salmon frying and the tide rolls 
See a friend tonight was very late when I walked in. My talking as it rambled revealed suspicious reasoning. The visit seemed to darken him. I came in as bright as a neon light, and I burned out right there before him. I told him these things I'm telling you now. Watch them buckle up. So now we move forward uh, two years, John, and we stay in the States uh, with a, just a fantastic band, Little Feet, Rock and Roll Doctor, one of their sort of oh, yeah. key, key tracks. Well, we did a lot of stuff in Atlanta. We were playing at a club called, in the Swan Song period, we played in a club in Atlanta called Richard's, and we wrote a song on Silk Torpedo called Atlanta. Uh, and um, that's where we came into contact with a lot of Southern bands. And the thing about Southern bands is that they're all really good players. I mean, one of my favourite uh, Southern current Southern band players is a, is a guy called Derek Trucks, who's a, a sort of sly guitar player, pa, 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 excellent. And um, coming before that, of course, we knew and saw some TV footage of of uh, Little Feet. And also later on, on the Old Grey Whistle Test, we also probably or watched or, or basically saw probably the best ever live band that ever played on any of Grey Whistle Test thing playing Rock and Roll Doctor. I mean, if you actually get that, that, um, that video of that particular, where they played it live on the Old Grey Whistle Test, it's just superb. It is just, it's, it's a, a southern rock and, rock and roll southern band just doing everything and they make it look so easy. So naturally, and they just groove. You know, there's not a beat out. There's not nothing speeds up, nothing slows down. It just slots from the very first four bars, slots into this wonderful groove. You know, which you can't help but tap your feet. You can't help but move. You just cannot help. And that's why I chose that because it is just such a great track. And Loud George sadly missed. Um, great slide player. Not a great lead slide playing the fact that he's trying to play everything but with all lead guitarists it's what they don't play the great ones it's what they don't play rather than what they could play and the, the sort of intervals in what he plays and, and the sort of it's just so it's such a perfect sort of song for, for as, as a great representation to southern american southern rock and roll bands you know it's great <laughs> a woman in Georgia didn't feel just right. She had fever all day and chills at night. Now things got worse, yes, a serious bind. In times like this, 
It takes a man that's a style like getting out of a vine. A doctor of the heart and a doctor of the mind. If you like country with a funky thing, here's a man to me. If you like the sound of champion did touch on them briefly earlier and they are, they are a band that are, are linked really with the uh, Pretty Thing story and also in this period too, uh, Swan Song um, it's Led Zeppelin and Kashmir Yeah, I mean we we were managed by Peter Grant for I think about three years Jimmy and Robert phoned us up and said would you like to make an album, probably join our record company which we were just thinking about making a record company so would you like to come down, so Phil and I it was in the band at the time, but Phil and I went up there and saw them. And I think what they really wanted was another SF Sorrow, because this is some time after that, obviously, time has clicked over. I think they wanted another SF Sorrow, but we had a different lineup, different Gordon Edwards, uh, Pete Tolson, Jack Green. And it was, a, you know, so we, we, we just did what we did. But at that, but just in between, I think, between uh, Silk Torpedo and Savage Eye, they then brought out the album, which I can see the cover, but I can't remember the name of the album. Is it Physical Graffiti in that? Physical, thank you very much. I'm glad one of us has got it together. When I first heard this track, what an amazing riff. And also what John Paul Jones and I worked together when we were young sprogs, very young, with David Gilmore. And we would be singing harmonies for Andrew Lou Goldham, some of his acts that he had. We were recording in a little 
studio in Soho somewhere, which is no bigger than a, than a, a lavatory, really. And Gilmore and I and Wally will be singing three-part harmonies for on the back of Marion Faithful stuff, whatever, whatever he brought up, we sang. And John Paul Jones used to do all the arrangements. Well, because very talented musician again, great pianist, great bass player, obviously. And of course, he did all that sort of string and mellotron, string and brass stuff on that track on Kashmir is all John Paul Jones. And uh, together with Page's riff, da 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 you know, it's just an incredible song and really, really powerful. Bonzo's drumming in it as well. It's, so, you know, it's just so on it, you know. You couldn't get a cigarette paper between the, you know, the, the drumming and the, and the, you just couldn't. It's so tight. And there's a story about Peter used to, when they were writing this stuff, he said, because Granty was a big guy. He was an ex-wrestler. He was about six foot two or three and built like a brick doodah. And he would stand in front. He would shut the door of the rehearsal room, stand in front of it, so none of them could get out. And he'd just leave them in there for hours and hours and hours and hours, sort of thumping this stuff out until, you know, until something came out of it. And he, that's, he was the fifth guy, fifth Zeppelin. So, you know, he would always have their interests in, at heart and he would make them, push them into doing things. And it showed, obviously, and the success shows that the benefit of him doing that, I think.
you know, in our respect, I think that they signed us, but we were never very successful, um, particularly in America. We went to America and we spent a lot of money in America in terms of traveling and all that sort of stuff, the arrangement. We, we were really well looked after. But I think Swan Song, together with Atlantic Records in America, they were used to success. They didn't really have to work that hard for Zeppelin because once, once it had traveled across the pond, it was such a universal sort of likable uh, sound and, and the whole image and the whole thing. They didn't have to do very much. But of course, with bands like us who were less known and had, you know, our history, um, you know, we come from sort of black man's blues played by white guys kind of thing into sophisticated or we thought at the time sophisticated psychedelia and then into more sort of musical songs more sort of performance in terms of guitar playing and piano playing and all that sort of stuff so we were kind of zeppelin were always zeppelin they'd never a bit like neil young really i mean as soon as you put a neil young record on you know it's neil young it's zeppelin you know it's zeppelin they hadn't changed their audience they they brought their audience with him where what we did was we changed our audience. We, we, we went away from the kind of R&B sort of long hair, sweat flicking and all that sort of maniac drummers, you know, into sort of more sophisticated music. So we didn't necessarily bring that loyal support with us, which called bands like Zeppelin from day one, just dragged their fans with them. and They left them very true to their fan base. It's really interesting you were talking about Swan Song. Previously spoken to Michael DeBar uh, about you know his band Detective, and he oh, yeah. basically kind of said yeah. it was fantastic being on Swan Song, but the promotion just wasn't there. No, no, they weren't. They just weren't. They just couldn't handle it. I mean, I mean, apart from, I mean, I think we spent as a band, um, they wanted some more albums out of us to pay for this, and we didn't. We were. At that time, we at the end of that, we'd broken up anyway. Phil had left, and uh, we were carrying on without him for a couple of a couple of gigs, uh, which wasn't good, but we did it. You know, we'd spent three quarters of a million quid anyway in expenses, which they paid out on our behalf. But you know, there was no chance in a million years that we were going to be able to pay that back. So they weren't anyway going to be putting their writing any more checks. So have we sold, have we got in the charts? In the, well, we did get in the charts, but very low down. But have we got into the top 20? So it would have been a different story. And they could have dealt with it. And I'm sure that bands like Bad Company came along. And of course, then that turned around again because Bad Company were bankable, you see. So they would come along and much more of a Zeppelin sort of lineup in that sense as well, with the singer, you know, being much more of a front man like Plant. Bill, never really a front man like that. So it was harder for them, Swan Song, to actually to get something going with us, I think. And Maggie Bell as well. Maggie Bell was another one on Swan Song who didn't really, didn't really do what they thought she was going to do. But they tried hard. I mean, Peter, we did a tour with Maggie Bell um, all over the UK and he came along to every gig. He was there with us in the hotel. He was, you know, he did everything he possibly could. Um, but, you know, the public are the public. And if they don't want it, they don't want it. Good albums, though, Soap Torpedo and Savage Eye in this period. And, you know, you did move on. Oh, they were great albums. Yeah, they were great albums to do. Norman, once again, Norman was involved. Recording techniques were different. Studios were different. And we were very lucky to have Keith Harwood, who was on the Stones. He was a Stones engineer as well. Sadly, he killed himself on coming back from a gig on the motorway. 
uh, ran into a bridge and crashed his car and died. He was a great, he was a great engineer. And of course, all those, they made the sounds. When you listen to those, they still stand up to me anyway. I don't know about to anybody else, but when I listen to those songs from them, they do stand up. Uh, you had a, quite, quite a big, big role in that period, you know, tracks like Singapore, Silk Torpedo. Yeah, they were, you know, it was just different again, wasn't it? I mean, you, you, hopefully you learn by experience. And when you have people like Gordon Edwards and Jack Green in the band who are very talented players as well, the ante jumps up. You know, you, you, you have to do more because, you know, you're in that ball. You know, when you're in that ball game with them, you, you have, to, you know, it's, it's a natural progression, which is why these days of remote writing with remote, you know, and doing it all on the internet, which I don't mind, but it's not the same as being in a little room somewhere bashing ideas out with four other guys. It just isn't. And that's why the music of that period sounds so real in terms of the music of now. I mean, I know I'm 75 years of age, so what do I know about the modern stuff? But to me, that was always the, the way this music has lasted so long is because of that particular way of doing things, way of writing songs.
We've got another incredible band, Fleetwood Mac and the Green Manalishi. I mean, what an incendiary track from Peter Green this one is. Well, he, he is was an incredible musician. I mean, we all know the story where he got spiked with LSD or something by this nutter, German nutter, uh, and all that, which, of course, and it's happened to a guy who played in the Pretty Things Big Unit, who was a guitarist who was brought in after Dick, and in between him, he played between Dick and Pete Tolson. He was slightly affected by that. I think it blew a few fuses, and then later on, of course, it affects him a lot more. I've seen it at first hand. What it, once again, you look at some of the early black and white footage of, of Fleetwood Mac. And what a great band. I mean, and that's a typical band who would sit in a studio somewhere and just bash it out. You know, just bash it out. And there was always a jigsaw that you've done or you know or you've seen many times before where you know where all the pieces are. And Pete Green could play his stuff and the other guys, Jeremy Dudan, I can't remember all their names now, and they would all just fit in together. Oh, Danny Kerwin. Yeah, they would. It was great. And they would just allow each of them to, to have their moment and allow each of them to, to blossom and then die back and blossom again. And, of course, but, but the driving factor was Peter Green and the ideas he had, the core changes he had. And just it was just so new and fantastic. I mean, you know, we all fell off when we were watching it, when we first saw them. It's very sad to see, you know, with everybody, anybody who's like that, I mean, anybody who's had that level of, or performance in them, or that level of being able to to do that stuff without any effort, and then to see them later on in life. And I, and I just love to recall those peak moments with Peter.
got a green man and she with a two-prong crown. All my trying is up, all you're bringing is down. Just taking my love and slipping away, leaving me here just trying to keep from following you. Again, we touched on this band earlier, and we've got the Who, and we are kind of in full rock mode here. We won't get fooled again. Are we? Are we going for the full eight and a half minute epic uh, Who's Next version, John? Yeah, absolutely, fantastic song. I mean, what another guy comes live? I don't know if they called it one take. I don't think they did. It sounds like an edit somewhere, but it's a great performance, you know. And once again, the band revolves around John Entwistle. You know, I know it's I know it's Daughtry doing his thing, and of course Mooney, who we who I met in L.A. with him. <laughs> I don't know how he got in Jimmy Page's room in L.A., but he got somehow he got across the balconies, only about 10 floors up or something. Somehow he managed to get across balconies and climbed in through the windows, you know. So he was he was a, an absolute character per se. You know, there was nothing, nobody liked Mooney. But, of course, the whole thing, again, they developed from the high numbers, that kind of aggressive thing. But the music... The music is so good, and they, they're just like a jigsaw together. You know, you couldn't put anybody else in there with them because it wouldn't work. It was just that, that chemistry of those four. And it's such a good song, and, you know, the, the message from the song sadly doesn't really transfer anymore because we're being fooled again and fooled again and fooled again, aren't we? Look at us now. We've got old Donald, we've got old Donald over there doing his thing, and, you know, there we are. <laughs> But of course, Kit Lambert was uh, quite instrumental in in making sure. I think that was recorded in New York. That that track, I think so. And um, I think that they didn't like it. <laughs> didn't like it. Wasn't matter with them. They didn't like it at first. Kit persuaded them that it was great and uh, they should really 
you know, have another crack at it, which they did. And, and of course, it's just superb. It's absolute masterpiece. Yeah, the synth. Pete, Pete Townsend experimenting on the synth. Yes. Yeah. Well, he was, you know, you may not like him or love him. He may be a bit of a strange boy, but I tell you what, he was very innovative with, with the, with, he experimented, you know, he had the time and he had the inclination and he probably had the finances that he could lock himself away with all this gear and come up with something. And he was very new. It was very new, wasn't it? It was very groundbreaking stuff, all that, you know, influenced a lot of bands, I think, influenced a lot of bands later. Yeah.
Right, we're almost there, John. And we've got, you know, another great track, uh, Joe Walsh and uh, Rocky Mountain Way here, but back from uh, 73. Uh, great song, this one. Well, we've record, we we played with, we did a tour with him in Canada um, as part of our kind of, we were put with Electric Lycos, so we did a few gigs with the Kinks. We did some with Stairs Crime, we did some with Joe Walsh. I'd never heard of Joe Walsh, I have to confess, until we, until we played our set, we were supporting him, so we played our set. And he ambled on stage and the crowd went, yeah, Joe, right. Cause they knew him and I didn't know him. He sort of put his guitar, plugged his guitar and gravely looked, <laughs> lots of noise going on, all that sort of stuff. And then he, he said, Oh God, man, look at my nails quick. Anybody got any scissors? You know, and so somebody would go off and he, and he stood there for about three minutes cutting his nails <laughs> before he even played. And I'm sure it was all, all a thing, you know. And he really, the, the atmosphere was building up, building up. I think, when's he going to play this guy? And then he went, you know, straight into that song. I went, God, what a track. It's just so good, live or recorded. It didn't matter. It's such a great song. And, the, and also the thing I learned about from it was it was the tempo of it. it we, we, I think as English musicians, we were inclined to thrash at it a bit. We're inclined to go hammer and tongs from one end of a song to another, like our, our pretty thing, sort of encore thing, Route 66. I mean, it was over, it was a five minute song, which was over in about two and a half minutes because we played it so fast. But I think that English bands tend to sort of go for that, where the American bands tended to, to create their music around a stage show. In other words, you know, they could bring highs and lows of it. They could bring the, you know, the highs and lows were more obvious. With us, it was like high from the first bar and it stayed like that to the end of the song. But with, with bands like Joe Walsh, he would be able to have that great riff, but, and yet, you know, and they're all in there and then he would bring it down and then he would bring it up again, you know, and, and that's what, yeah, keeps, keeps the audience so, interested in what's going on you know and i think that's the difference between a lot of american rock bands little feet included and these kind of bands and the english wave and the funny thing is that of course the the americans love led zeppelin and all those kind of things and uh and the english sort of love joe walsh and <laughs> even though they were big on both sides of the atlantic but initially i think it's the difference between the way the music is approached that makes them so attractive to the different types of audiences, really. But great track, and thanks for uh, for playing that, which is coming up, I think, in a minute. <laughs>
So we're here, and uh, we've we've certainly kept the listeners waiting, but definitely worth the wait, John. We we've got bang up to date new track, uh, Star Sponge Vision, track you made with uh, uh, Twink Crowley and me. It's uh, out on Mega Dodo Records. Is, has that got kind of all, all the usual releases, digital, vinyl, CD? Yeah, all that vinyl, CD, digital platforms, and it comes out twenty seventh of April. Anything else to to share on that that record? Well, Star Sponge Vision sounds a bit of a strange name, but it was, in fact, it was part of Crowley. He had a vision, a sort of vision in, in one of his seances or meditation, whatever he was doing at that time, and he called it Star Sponge Vision, which is where Twink said to me, look, this is a good name for a band. What we didn't want to do was to be the old boys. Oh, aren't they dead yet? See that old bugger? You know, they should be pushing up daisies by now. We wanted to do something a bit new, so we thought yeah. we'll get these new guys in who are very great players, great to work with, like working with us, we like working with them. And it just gives it a sort of bit more of a shot in the arm, a bit more. Although the music is, it's not sort of progressive in that sense. It still sounds like a bit like the pretty things, a bit like something else. But, you know, that's we. That's what we are. You know, we can't be anything else. Too old now to change. Sorry, folks out there. You know, it was great to do, and I, we enjoyed doing it very much. And I'd like to thank you very much as well for taking oh, no, the time no, to talk no. to me. It's a pleasure. And um, we, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And you. Uh, let's hope the folks out there enjoy the program. I hope they do. I'm sure they will. Uh, I mean, brilliant. And uh, I've really enjoyed Crowley and Me from you know, your new band, Star Sponge Vision. It's been a real privilege, John. And uh, it's been a real travelogue uh, through through your world and window, and it's been great how you weaved those stories in uh, into an insight into your uh, very long and illustrious <laughs> career in the uh, music industry. Thanks, my friend. Thanks very much. Bye now. Bye.
side when they sent you away You turned your head, wanted to stay No stone unturned, I searched with you We grasped the secrets, all of those truths The gate blew open, you saw the truth Futility of life, sadness of hope You rubbed your eyes, we stood in the light A vision of our heart's delight Plays a waning game, hard to find, impossible to tame. Wise ones watch the foolish run, paying the price for the things that they've done. 